All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do this morning, join me in turning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 3. 1 Peter, chapter number 3. That's quite an army exiting this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 3, marks the last section in a three-part section of 1 Peter that focuses on the topic of submission. We looked a few weeks ago, and this is a sort of a drawing down. Peter is starting broad, and he's drawing this down to the most personal level possible. We ask of the text, Peter provides instruction as to how we can position ourselves as the church when we find ourselves under wicked governing authorities that may seek to exercise their authority in an oppressive way. The answer is in verse 13 of chapter 2. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. In the, in the, in the broadest possible way, as Christians in a society that is bent on evil, what is our posture toward governing authorities? It is submission. And then Peter draws that down a little further, dealing with the institution of slavery in the first century from which we drew application for the work part of our life. Peter says in verse 18 of chapter 2, household slaves submit with all fear to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. So what is our posture toward those human authorities who bear power over us, whether it be our supervisor, our employer, or in whatever structure you find yourself in, there is someone out there who enjoys authority over you. What is your posture toward that person or those persons? It is one of submission. And as was the case with governing authorities, no exception or qualification is made here for those bad governors or bad employers. Because Peter is clear that we submit not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the cruel. Now this is crazy. I, I had, there was a brother pastor here last week who visited with me momentarily after our service and paid me what I think was probably the best compliment I have been paid in preaching in quite some time. He said, man, your preaching is countercultural," Which is kind of the point, right? And it's a point that I've labored here and now for years to make again and again and again. Way back to that series in the Sermon on the Mount where we talked about this upside down kingdom that Jesus is calling us into. And I cannot for the life of me understand why we would convince ourselves that the outcome, that what would be produced, that the culture that would emanate from a crooked and perverse generation would look anything like the kingdom culture that Jesus has called us to. We have been called upon to be different. Now what Peter is describing here is not only countercultural, it's counterintuitive. You might look at these passages from a worldly perspective and say, this just will not work. I tried to challenge you last week. We've been fighting with the weapons of this world for a long, long time, and it has not worked. Why don't we just try for a little while Jesus' way? 
this counterintuitive, countercultural approach to dealing with issues in these various realms of life and let the battle belong to the Lord and see what he does. So he's dealt with society in general, how we come under the authority of, of governing authorities, emperors and those sent out by him, how, how we con conduct ourselves within the workplace or the work parts of our life, namely we submit ourselves to them. But he's drawing this down to an even more personal level in the seven verses we're going to consider this morning to the household, to marriage, and to family. Specifically dealing with wives at some length because there exists potential there for a wife in a patriarchal society to experience the same kind of mistreatment that a slave might experience from a master or a subject might experience from governing authorities that did not have the interest of his subjects in view. There's a similarity in the kind of vulnerability experienced by the wife as in the prior two scenarios. Again, the answer in this situation, in this scenario is submission. First Peter chapter three, if you found your way there, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Peter begins under the inspiration of God's spirit in the same way, meaning just as in the prior two scenarios, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live when they observe your pure reverent lives. Your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and are not frightened by anything alarming. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. You might be inclined to think, just as we've read the passage, that this is a passage that is about the structure, the organization, the God-ordained institution of marriage, family, and the husband and wife role within that institution. But that is not what this passage is about. For that level of insight, you're going to have to look to other New Testament texts, such as Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Fathers, don't exasperate your children, but love them and lead them well, bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And children, obey your parents, which is the first command with promise. There is an example of the institutions of marriage and family and the roles and responsibilities of each individual party in the building up of that family unit. 1 Peter chapter 3, on the other hand, is about mixed marriages. 
marriages between believing wives and unbelieving husbands. And the focus here, as it was in last week's text and the week before, the goal in each case is to maintain the positive reputation of the Christian community and to win the lost by the message of the gospel spoken from a gentle and quiet spirit. The goal is the engagement, the interaction of the believing wife within the context of an unbelieving household so that nothing she does creates an obstacle or an impediment to her husband or others coming to faith in Jesus. Remember last week we talked about the reality that in the first century many were looking at the effects of Christianity on the household unit, understanding its foundational nature to society and evaluating, assessing the value of the gospel on the basis of how it influenced or impacted the family. The gospel of Jesus Christ should have a positive outcome in your family. The consequence of the Spirit of God invading your heart and invading your home should be altogether positive. And Peter is training in that direction in the verses before us. In chapter 3 and verse 1, Peter says again in the same way, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live. That's the focus of these verses. I, I, I have a stronger sense of sympathy with believing wives who have unbelieving husbands than with the two former scenarios. I have observed at some distance folks who experience oppression or mistreatment under wicked, wicked governing regimes, but only at a distance. Virtually all that we experience here is no more than frustration and mild discomfort. The day is coming. The day is coming. But for now, most of our observations in this realm are from some distance. I have worked in environments. I have been an employee in settings that made it difficult to follow Jesus. Even would jest about my faith in Jesus, push back at my convictions, and I have observed with some distance others who've experienced the same. One of the beautiful things about living in America where there is social and economic mobility is that if you are unhappy in your workplace, you are free to go get another job. So for the most part, that kind of discomfort, that kind of oppression is short-lived. It typically doesn't last for a long time. But from within the context of the home, I have observed the challenges that come with being an unbelieving wife, or a believing wife rather, with an unbelieving spouse. I've shared with you all who've been here for any amount of time, I, I moved in with my grandparents when I was still 15 years old, almost 16, dropped out of high school and moved in with them. And I, I watched my grandmother day by day, week by week, month by month, what turned into decade by decade, love faithfully an unbelieving husband. Let me tell you something. My granny loved Jesus. She was on Monday when no one else was watching what she was in the company of the saints on the Lord's day. She was the real deal. 
I've watched her, I've observed her life as a follower of Jesus more closely than almost anyone else in my life. And she was the real deal. When I moved in with them, I, I, I dropped out of high school. I was just a flunky and a mess and lost and twisted up in so many ways. And, and she would do things that would frustrate me to no end. She always did, even until the time she died. She could aggravate me more than anyone else in this world. I love her with all my heart, but she could frustrate me like no one else. She would wake me up, not intentionally, but she would wake me up on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings, which typically represented mornings after I'd been out doing only God knows what the night before, sitting in her rocker next to my grandfather's chair, reading the Bible out loud in the hopes that there would come a moment in time when the power of God's word would take hold of his heart. To the best of our knowledge, to the best of my knowledge, he died lost and separated from Jesus by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He died, he perished in his lostness, at least as far as we know. We know ultimately he's in the hands of a good and faithful God who always does what is right, but as best we know, there never came a moment in his life when he professed faith in Jesus. And in spite of, of his frequent cruelties, she persisted in loving him for all of his life. Her efforts never resulted in his salvation, but oh, what an influence they've had in my life and what a powerful impact they've had in our family. Some would look at that example and say, that's a failure. It didn't culminate in his coming to faith in Jesus, but that's not how we evaluate success in the kingdom. Her story is one of success because she finished well. She loved him to the end, even when it was greatly difficult. There are success stories in our congregation of wives who've loved unbelieving husbands and after 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years have witnessed them coming to faith in Jesus. And those are glorious. But the success is in the steadfast faithfulness of us as individuals, bearing with what we bear with, filled with the Spirit of God, persevering unto the end. I, I, I sense a greater degree of sympathy with this scenario than the others. There were times in my unregenerate life when I would ask Granny, why don't you pack his boxes and put his behind on the porch? That's what I would have done. And it's reasonable that, that that's the kind of outcome, the kind of conclusion that you would come to. If I had a nickel for every time he, with a grumbly voice, rattled that glass and said, Dot, fill up my tea glass, I would be a wealthy, wealthy man. With a gentle and quiet spirit, she persevered, faithfully serving Jesus over the duration of her life. I'm not telling you that it's fair, but I am saying to you that this is what the Lord has called us to. Now, we're back to this idea of an otherworldly perspective. If, if you are living under the delusion that you're going to find satisfaction and joy and fulfillment and pleasure in this life to the ultimate, this will be a jagged gospel pill that you will never manage to get down. Because it, it requires of us that we persevere through some pain and anguish for the duration of our life. There is no end potentially till death do us part. But if you have looked beyond this life, 
into the loving face of our Lord Jesus Christ and fixed your gaze there. You'll find yourself sustained and encouraged that what awaits us in Jesus by far surpasses anything this world might afford us or any experience we might enjoy in the here and now. This is counterintuitive and it is countercultural. But the outcome, the product, is eternally significant. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Wives, submit to, your, submit to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. A person cannot be won except by the message of the gospel. But that does not, within the context of the home, mean the incessant, nagging, Bible-thumping repetition of the message again and again and again and again. Establish the message of the gospel. That Jesus died in our place on the cross. That without sin, the one who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become by faith the righteousness of God. That the just one is given over in the place of the unjust in order that he might bring us to God, establish the message, and relish the message, and live in light of the joy bestowed in the message. And then, and then build credibility, soften and condition the heart by, by living a life that has been fundamentally changed by that message. This is how the kingdom is advanced within the context of marriage and family. Verses three and four read, your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. Some have taken a sort of radical interpretation of verses three and four suggesting that these verses represent a prohibition against elaborate hairstyles, gold ornaments or jewelry, and fine clothes. I'll have you to know that when it comes to my bride, I kind of like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of jewelry and fine clothes. These verses represent no such prohibition. But it does represent an exclusive focus on outward beauty to the neglect of inner beauty. The focus, the emphasis, the point of greatest concern should be of inner beauty. What is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. In the same way, wives, that you might woo and win the physical attraction of your husband by your outward appearance. Woo and win the heart of your husband by the inner beauty, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what Peter is describing in our passage. Verses 5 and 6, Peter cites the example of Sarah and her submission to Abraham as a model for believing wives with unbelieving husbands. It's not that Sarah's husband was unbelieving. It is that here in 1 Peter, Abraham and Sarah become the prototypical resident aliens. We're back to this idea of this world is not our home, right? We are strangers and pilgrims and sojourners. 
And such was the experience in an earthly way for Abraham and Sarah. Abram was called from Ur of the Chaldeans to go and to live in a land that was not his own, but would one day belong to his ancestral line in order that God might establish for himself a people all his own. They are the prototypical resident aliens, strangers and pilgrims passing through this life. In verse 5, Peter says, For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and are not frightened by anything alarming. Now, there's some pretty fascinating things happening here in these verses. Peter is referring here to Genesis chapter 18. When an angel of the Lord comes and meets with Abraham in a tent. And he begins to have this conversation with Abraham about he and Sarah bearing a child. And that child being the son of promise through which this ancestral line God has promised would come. Sarah's outside the tent but she overhears the conversation and she laughs. By this point both Abraham and Sarah are advanced in years as the Bible says which is a biblical way of saying they old. Sarah laughed. She's rebuked ultimately by the angel, but also by Abraham. And in the, in, the, in the context of that conversation, she refers to Abraham as Lord. Now, this is not an, an invitation for you wives to go home and begin to make reference to your husbands as Lord. Nor is this an invitation for you knucklehead husbands to go home and ask your wife to call you Lord. I can see it coming. It's an example from the text of Sarah's willful submission to the spiritual headship of her hus husband, Abraham. Now, consider, Peter has no more access to the life of Abraham and Sarah than you and I do. He has the text. So from a context that really is not dealing with headship and submission, he simply draws this statement to illustrate Sarah submitted herself to Abraham. And in your submission to your spiritual head, your husband, you are identifying with Sarah, the matriarch of Israel. Now, it's pretty common in the New Testament for Paul and others to speak of our identification with Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, the patriarch of Judaism. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives three full chapters in the book of Romans to this idea that even as Gentile people, we are by faith being grafted in to the lineage of Abraham. We, by faith in Jesus, become the sons and daughters of Abraham. Under the old covenant, you became a member of the family of Abraham by ethnicity. But under the new covenant, we become the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. But here it's not an identification with Abraham. For those believing wives, dealing with the difficulties, the challenges of an unbelieving husband, Peter says you are identifying not with the patriarch, but with the matriarch of Israel. There, there is a subtle but a significant elevation of the status of women in this first century patriarchal context. And it doesn't stop here. In fact, wives are referred to in verse 7 as co-heirs of the grace of God. That may not seem revolutionary to you, 
but it marks a significant departure from the ways of the world in the first century. Rather than being hangers-on in the spiritual commitments or journeys of the husband, wives have been elevated to the status of co-heirs with Christ. This is indicative of what the Apostle Paul says elsewhere when he describes a scenario in which in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. There is equality in Christ and equality not enjoyed elsewhere in first century culture. And I would contend an equality not often enjoyed outside of cultures where Christianity has been a predominant source of influence. It's always fascinating to me the way these kinds of passages are judged by the secular among us. As, as though this represents some kind of antiquated, outdated, outmoded approach to marriage and to family. First of all, when it comes to the institutions of marriage and family, you can go the wayward way. You can, you can reject out of hand what the Bible describes as the roles for husbands, wives, and children. But you will do it kicking against the goads. You will do it to your own peril. You will do it to the absence of real, lasting joy and satisfaction in your life. You will often do it to the destruction of your children, and you will often do it to the destruction of your marriage. What God has prescribed for us, he prescribes not as a wicked taskmaster seeking to rob us of joy or of freedom, but because he frankly knows what is best for his people. It's amazing to me the ability that we have created or the skill that we have sharpened over time to ignore the obvious elephant in our societal room. The key social issue in our day is the breakdown of the nuclear family. And you can talk about legislation and you can talk about incentives and you can talk about shifts in policy all you'd like. You can talk about the election of the next, next series of politicians and who might do things differently. But until something fundamental changes with regards to the nuclear family, until husbands begin to observe the obligations unique to husbands and mothers begin to observe those obligations unique to mothers and children begin to conduct themselves in a way that recognizes the respect due a mother and a father until the nuclear family is what it needs to be. We will continue as a culture to circle the drain. It's just a fact. And this doesn't necessarily, yes, this doesn't necessarily even have to be a, a statement that's born out of a theological conviction. At this point, it's just an observation in reality, statistically, empirically, where the nuclear family thrives. According to the teaching of the scripture, society prospers. This is just a basic observation. Go to your local schools. Ask your teachers to identify the problem children. They'll all come from problem households. Go to the prison. Ask of those inmates the single common social trait they all suffer under, fatherlessness. There's no father in the home, broken families. You can go back, you can go back to my teenage years, those rough, 
lost years of my life and I've thought through again and again and again. And in every case, every friend I ever had, every friend who involved themselves in the kind of behavior we involved ourselves in, there was a single thing we all had in common, a dysfunctional family that could not afford for us what God intended a young man to have to get him off on the right foot. This is just an observation in reality. So you can kick against the goads of what's being described here and elsewhere when it comes to the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives, but you will do so to your own peril. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, you've become her children when you do what is good and are not frightened by anything alarming. Let's address the last part of that verse just momentarily. The idea of being not frightened by anything alarming is a break from the story of Abraham and Sarah. In other words, Peter has departed from that story, and the reason we know that is because he's moved away from Genesis 18 to an almost direct quote from Proverbs 3.25, a verse that reads, don't fear sudden danger or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. He is not talking about any sense of fear or physical harm or dread Sarah might have suffered under, under the hand of Abraham. Y'all tracking with me? I, if, if you ever come to me as a counselor, and I, I will confess, I am not a good counselor. I got, I got pretty brief and straightforward counsel. Stop it. Just stop. Whatever you're doing, just stop doing it and things will get better. I used to come to my daddy and I'd say, if I do my arm like this, it hurts. And he'd say, don't do your arm like this. That's kind of what I got, you know. But if you ever come to me as a husband and wife for counsel, I can guarantee you, you will never hear from me counsel that you should, that you should divorce as a couple. I'll, I'll never offer that counsel. Now, there are exceptions in the New Testament that afford an outlet for that in some extreme cases. But I always refer to those as the nuclear option. It's an option that might be exercised but make no mistake, there will be consequences that come with exercising that nuclear option. But if you ever come to me, if you ever come to me as a wife and you share with me that there is the threat of some physical harm or danger, I'm going to help you pack the boxes. And if I happen to drop one on his head while we're there, I'll not be held responsible. This is not a passage that calls or requires of you that you remain in a hostile environment where you or your children live under the constant threat of some physical harm or danger. That is not what's described. In fact, it's a fearlessness that comes with the reality that one day God is going to judge the living and the dead. And I'm going to find myself having taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, safe and well protected from the wrath that is to come. Isn't it interesting that Peter deals for six verses with wives who have unbelieving husbands, but only one for husbands with unbelieving wives? Look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. There's a number of interesting things here in verse 7. The gist here is that husbands would honor their wives. 
Peter begins, husbands, in the same way. In other words, the pattern, the paradigm for reaching an unbelieving wife is not unlike the pattern for reaching an unbelieving husband. What you've observed in verses one through six, kingdom advancement through the message of the gospel spoken from a gentle and quiet spirit. In the same way that's good for winning unbelieving husbands, it's also good for winning unbelieving wives. You don't win your wife by flexing and insisting that your convictions be observed at every turn. Make the message clear, but with deference to her concerns, with interest in her comforts, with with a real desire to see her needs met, a gentle and quiet spirit goes a long, long way. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature. This is where the more feminist types who've not already recalled that the notion of submitting to a husband get a little surly. What in the world do you mean, Peter, pastor, weaker vessel? I would, I would note here, I don't write the news, I just deliver it. Does it mean spiritual weakness? No, surely not. The passage itself as a whole militates against that notion. You get six verses for believing wives dealing with unbelieving husbands. This is a phenomenon consistent throughout the history of the church. You just get one verse for believing husbands dealing with unbelieving wives. It almost never works in that way. In fact, statistically, they say if a wife comes to faith in Jesus, there's a little better than 50% chance the family follows after in faith and engagement in the local church. But when a husband and father comes to faith, statistically, more than 90% of the time, the family, the spouse, the family follows after in faith in Jesus and engagement in the local church. It almost never happens that way. This, if nothing else, speaks to the spiritual strength of ladies, of wives, of women within the context of the church. Surely this is not a spiritual weakness that's referred to here. Is it an intellectual weakness? Given the connection that exists between wisdom and understanding in the biblical context, it it would be wrongheaded and post-first century to even inject something like that into the conversation. Surely that's not what Peter intends here. Spiritual wisdom, which is expressed in faith, is the product of a high intellect. Surely that's enjoyed by our more feminine partners. It's not intellectual and it's not spiritual. What about physical weakness? Well, basic observation would say that's the case. You need look no further than our efforts at the present hour of shoehorning men into the bodies of women and shoehorning women into the bodies and experiences of men. Again, these don't necessarily have to be observations rooted in a great deal of theological conviction. Anybody with half sense can make these kinds of observations. This is basic biology. And what Peter is saying here is that you as the husband, you as the male, you as the father have been granted greater physical strength than your feminine spouse 
and you are to exercise that strength. You are to exercise that power by providing for the protection, the respect, and the honor of the wife who has entrusted herself to your protection and provision. That's precisely what's being described in our passage. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of grace so that your prayers will not be hindered. It's kind of this thought, like people think, well, everybody can pray. We all have this access to prayer. That is not true. In fact, first and foremost, except by the blood of Jesus, you cannot be heard in heaven. It's through the blood of Jesus that we gain access to the Father in prayer. It is through Jesus. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through me. Surely that is true of salvation, but it is furthermore true of every realm of life and every spiritual discipline. Our only access to God, whether it be in salvation or in prayer, is through Jesus Christ. But there are further actions that might be taken that might limit or hinder your ability to be graciously heard in heaven. The psalmist said, if we regard iniquity in our heart, God does not hear our prayer, which is to say, when we harbor hatred and hostility and a love for sin in our heart, God is unpleased, displeased to hear our prayers. Here Peter says that the mistreatment of your wife, your failure to honor your wife, results in the hindrance of your prayer life. To fail to treat your wife with honor will hinder your ability to commune with the God of heaven. In short, the way you treat your wife has a direct effect on your relationship with Jesus. Let's back up from the text and remind ourselves of what Peter's agenda is here. The goal is that our interactions would not hinder or limit the advancement of the kingdom, the salvation of others. Within the context of society, we want to conduct ourselves in a way that advances the kingdom, wins the souls of men. Within the work parts of our life, we want to conduct ourselves in a way that doesn't create hindrances or obstacles, but sees the kingdom advanced and the souls of men one to faith in Jesus. And within the context of the family unit, we wish to conduct ourselves in a way that would create not obstacles for our spouse or our children coming to faith, but that the kingdom would be advanced and that those closest to us would see the profound effect the gospel has had on our heart and how it has radically changed our life. I invited, I think it was the first guest preacher that, that I ever invited to, to come and, and be a part of a service here. It was a GIC a couple of years ago, and because he'd scold me otherwise, I won't mention his name, but he's a friend of mine in ministry. He's, he's older than I am. He's the generation beyond me, and I just have a great respect for him, and I was excited about having invited him here and shared with a mutual friend that, that he was coming. And I didn't realize this, but our mutual friend had been this pastor's son's pastor in Jackson, Tennessee when he was in school at, at Union. My, my friend, our mutual friend, had pastored our preacher, our speaker's son in college ministry. 
He said there was a Wednesday night. He, he, he immediately went to this story. He was impressed by it, and I was as well. He, he told about his son being in this college ministry and how one Wednesday night he just asked the question kind of as a conversation starter in their meeting, who's the most godly person that you know? In all of your life, and all of your church experiences, who's, who's that senior saint in church? Who's that hero of the faith, that missionary that you've been close to, that preacher who invested deeply in you, that Sunday school teacher who gave themselves, who took a special interest in you, maybe a teacher at school that loved Jesus and was expressive of their faith. Who's the godliest person you've ever known? My friend's son raised his hand and said, it's my daddy. And I'm going I'm to tell you something. That's, that's the kind of life I would really love to live. That somewhere down the road, my children and my wife would be able to make a similar observation of, of their father, of, of her husband. The trick with family is they know us best. The problem with family is they know us best. And they're making up close observations of your life at times and in ways that it's difficult to appreciate. The same way I watched a granny under difficult circumstances love faithfully an often cruel husband under difficult circumstances. It had a, a deep and lasting impact on my life. And your children and your grandchildren and your spouses are making similar observations of you. Within the context of the family unit, let's resolve together that no step we take, no decision we make, no remark we make would do anything, anything, anything to create an obstacle, but would kick down the doors that might stand between those we love most coming to full faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the opportunity to spend these moments together. God, if we're hearing your word well here, it can be a sensitive subject because it is so close to home. No doubt within this congregation, there are wives here whose husbands are not, or perhaps even are, but they know them at least by the fruit in their life to be far from God. There are probably a few situations where there are believing husbands in the same scenario. God, I pray that this passage would be a reminder to them to stay the course, to run the race, to finish the course set before them, God, and that you'd remind them of the reward that awaits us in the gospel, come what may. I pray, God, that for the unbelieving spouses here today, that today, that this moment, that the next few moments would represent a, a monumental moment, a milestone day in their life, a time they could look back to, where they repented of their sin, entrusted their soul to Jesus, and everything, everything, everything changed. God, I pray that you would work in that way, that you would save the unbelieving spouse, that you would sustain the believing spouse to persevere until the very last day. God, I, I pray that for those of us in loving Christian homes, that you would help us to be holy, to be right with God, Lord, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness and love and peace and self-control in all our ways. Help us to be good husbands and wives, good mothers and fathers, 
honorable, respectful children. God, help us as family units to be what you've called us to be. We recognize, God, that so much of the world is looking to the Christian family to assess the value of the gospel. May they never see anything in us that would create an obstacle or an impediment to their coming to faith in Jesus. Help us, Father, to fight the good fight. Might you be pleased in us. In Jesus' name, amen.